The following appeared on the front page of the New York Times on April 3, 1992. The conviction of John Gotti yesterday was a scintillating triumph for a team of federal prosecutors who, with years of diligence and a few good breaks, breathed new life into a tired old script and shattered the maddening aura of invincibility of a notorious gangster who called himself a plumbing salesman. The script would become dog-eared, as Mr. Gotti, the reputed boss of the nation's largest, most powerful mafia group, had stymied prosecutors, winning an assault case in Queens in 1986, a federal racketeering case in Brooklyn in 1987, and an assault conspiracy case in Manhattan in 1990. With the Teflon Don basking in celebrity usually reserved for Hollywood stars, and a humbled law enforcement establishment wondering what it would take to get a conviction, the decision to bring a fourth case was risky, said the New York Times. So how do you take down the Teflon Don? How do you take down the Gambino family? Welcome to Law and the Body Politic, a podcast exploring the intersection of law with history, business, culture, and politics. I'm your host, Rick Bailey. I'm a trial lawyer and mediator focusing on complex business disputes, and you can find me at www.rickbaileylaw.com and on LinkedIn. In Episode 3 of Law and the Body Politic, I talk with my college roommate and good friend Patrick Cotter about his experience as one of the Gotti prosecutors. We take you through the investigation, the wiretaps, and the trial. Along the way, we discuss topics ranging from the sublime, such as the function and operations of the grand jury, to the ridiculous, John Gotti's hairstylist. We discuss what it was like for Pat to sit on Sammy the Bull Gravano's bed in his jail cell to prepare Sammy for trial. We discuss a late-night meeting with the judge where Pat and the other prosecutors learn that there was a contract out on them. We put all of this in the context of recent events, discuss the vast power of the federal government, and the need for effective defense counsel. Patrick Cotter is a 1982 graduate of the NYU School of Law. After a stint as a public defender, Mr. Cotter joined the Organized Crime Strike Force for the Eastern District of New York, where he prosecuted Gotti and many other cases. After leaving the federal government, Pat has been a law professor and a criminal defense lawyer in complex white-collar cases. He is leader of his Chicago law firm's government interaction practice group, where he assists clients in dealing with an array of government agencies, including the FBI, EPA, IRS, FTC, and the Department of Justice. Pat was a consultant to the U.N. Special Rapporteur investigating allegations of war crimes in the former Yugoslavia, and was appointed by the International Tribunal to its panel of appointed counsel. He appears frequently as a legal commentator on television and radio, including on Nightline, National Public Radio, Court TV, and A&E's American Justice. His legal commentary has appeared in newspapers in Chicago and around the country, and he's taught criminal law-related courses at universities in the U.S. and Ireland. You can find out more about Pat on LinkedIn, or at www.greensfelder.com. Pat, why don't you uh, talk just a little bit about the general uh, background of the John Gotti uh, case? 
uh, including when the investigation started and uh, when the trial occurred. The John Gotti case uh, was ultimately tried in beginning in January of 1992, but the investigation began approximately two and a half years prior to that. And it began with the impaneling of a grand jury, and we began to gather evidence at that time, uh, we being the Strike Force on Organized Crime of the Department of Justice uh, located in the Eastern District of New York, which is Brooklyn, Queens, and Long Island. Um, John Gotti at the time was known to be the head of the single largest organized crime family in the United States, the Gambino crime family. Gotti had been the subject of several prior prosecutions, um, but never was he on trial for being the boss of the Gambino family. He was tried for a number of miscellaneous things in state court and then one prior federal case. Um, however, uh, for the most part, he had not been found guilty for a variety of reasons. Uh, ultimately, the decision was made that uh, somebody who we knew to be the head of the largest crime family in the country should probably be investigated and, if possible, prosecuted. So. That was our mission, and I and uh, another attorney in the office uh, by the name of John Gleason uh, were given that assignment. And we worked from the beginning very closely with the FBI, which had a dedicated uh, squad of FBI agents who investigated uh, the Gambino organization. So beginning in uh, approximately 1990, maybe might have even been in the latter half of 1989, we impaneled a grand jury and we began issuing subpoenas and interviewing witnesses. And so that's how the case began. And we ultimately filed an indictment in um, 1991 in which we charged Gotti and the two other top leaders of his uh, family, uh, Salvatore Gravano, his underboss, and Frank Locasio, his consigliere, uh, we charged them in a 13-count indictment uh, charging participation in a racketeering conspiracy. Uh, I believe it was four murders, several murder conspiracies, obstruction of justice involving bribery and fixing juries, uh, gambling, running an illegal gambling organization, and also uh, not paying their taxes. So uh, those were the charges uh, in rough form. And we went to trial in January of 1992. The trial lasted roughly three months. And at the end of the trial, uh, the two defendants who uh, persisted in their not guilty pleas that would be Gotti and Lacasio. They were both convicted. Uh, Gotti was convicted of everything. Lacasio was convicted of everything except uh, his participation in a gambling organization. And uh, the third defendant, Gravano, had become, after 10 months, a uh, he pled guilty and became a government witness. He testified. Uh, Gotti was ultimately sentenced to life without parole. Uh, on the basis of the multiple murders, as was Locasio. 
and Gravano ultimately was sentenced to 11 years and continued to cooperate for another two years. So that's a very rough overview of the case. Yeah, that that's a great start here. And um, so let's step back then to the beginning. First, um, not everyone will know exactly what the Organized Crime Strike Force is um, or was at that time. So could you just describe that in general? Sure. Um, the Organized uh, Crime Strike Force uh, was initially begun by Robert Kennedy when he was Attorney General. And it was an effort to create a nationwide network of federal prosecutors who would focus exclusively on organized crime, and they would not be answerable to local authorities, including local U.S. attorneys. And the premise was that you needed specialists, you needed long-term commitment to build these cases, and you needed to be free of any local uh, influences because the organized crime families had uh, a pretty clear record of periodically corrupting local law enforcement. So the idea was to create an independent group of prosecutors spread around the country wherever organized crime seemed to be flourishing and have them build cases slowly and hopefully correctly and pursue that. That organization uh, lasted as an independent entity until uh, about 1988. At that time, a decision was made in Washington by the Department of Justice, uh, along with Congress, to merge the strike forces into the local U.S. attorney's offices. The thinking at the time was that the uh, historic dangers of local corruption or influence on uh, federal attorney generals had diminished, and there was no longer any need to have the strike force attorneys independent that they should be, in, in fact, attached to the local U.S. attorneys. Um, at that time, um, all the strike force offices around the country, there were about eight or nine, were merged into their local U.S. attorney's offices. And in Brooklyn, where we had one of the larger, more active strike forces, uh, we were merged into the U.S. attorney's office, but at the same time, we were allowed to continue to maintain physically separate offices and to uh, function uh, primarily as an independent group, again, still focused exclusively on organized crime. So I joined the strike forces back in 1980, late 85, early 86, and uh, yeah, 86, and uh, was with them when they were independent. And then after we were merged, I stayed and continued on. I'm um, interested in how you got to the uh, to the strike force. Um, you went to NYU Law School. Um, why don't you tell us about your law school experience? And then, uh, if I recall correctly, you were a public defender uh, for a few years before joining the strike force. So, how did you make that transition from law school to public defender to organized crime prosecutor? Sure. Uh, I did go to NYU. While I was at NYU, I was looking for areas of the law to specialize in. I began volunteering while in law school with the Legal Aid Society of New York. The Legal Aid Society of New York is one of the old, oldest legal aid uh, groups in the country, and they at that time had the contract 
to provide all public defender services in the city of New York. So I volunteered with them and I was sent out to Brooklyn to work in the Brooklyn uh, criminal court building. And I would assist, uh, uh, I didn't provide much assistance because I didn't know anything, but uh, I would I would hang around with the uh, public defenders at Legal Aid uh, as they did their jobs and try to learn things. And uh, I did that starting in my second year of law school uh, during the summer between second and third year, I did an internship with the federal defender in Chicago, again, public defending, but in the federal courts. And when I returned from my final year of law school, I again uh, was volunteering a lot at legal aid and ultimately decided I wanted to be a public defender and I applied to legal aid and, and I was lucky enough to be hired. So in 82, I began uh, full-time with legal aid and I did that until uh, 86, and uh, I represented indigent defendants in uh, misdemeanor and ultimately federal courtrooms in Brooklyn, and uh, got a lot of uh, amazing experience and, and learned quite a bit uh, about the law and other things, and um, really thought it was a great job and great work, great people. Um, but I had an opportunity uh, to make a shift. Uh, there was a judge in the state courts who was promoted and had the ability to bring a full-time law clerk with him. And so for a variety of reasons, uh, he offered me the job and I, I took it. Uh, I did that for about four months uh, and realized I was so bored. I was in danger of doing myself injury. And I went to him and apologized and said, I'm sorry, I can't do this anymore. I'm going back to legal aid. And he was very nice. And he said, well, hang on, you know, let, let's, let's see what your other options are. And long story short, he suggested I apply to the strike force and organized crime in Brooklyn, where he knew people who had worked with him many years earlier. I applied. I was very lucky. They were in need of a, an attorney who could come in and start trying cases immediately they had a very large case, a six-month-long, uh, 19-defendant labor racketeering case, and they needed somebody who could step in and go into that immediately. So I was hired, and I began with them. And that's where I was for the next uh, almost 10 years. And so you joined the strike force in 1985? Is that what you said? Uh, end of 85, beginning of 86. I think actually my start date was probably 86. Okay, and you had tried a number of cases with Legal Aid by that point, so that's why. Oh yes, yeah. Legal Aid was um, uh, a a very uh, hard way to learn the law, but it was a great way. We tried cases constantly. Um, I really can't count the number of cases I tried. I probably tried over a dozen uh, jury trials, but we used to try a lot of bench trials as well, and we did innumerable hearings and sentencing. So. You were on your feet in court trying cases all the time. So it was a great training ground, and that ultimately is what made me attractive to the strike force because, as I say, they were in need of somebody to try a case uh, with another attorney. So they hired a new guy to work with them, and that was me. But it was a great experience, and it was a, it was a horrible experience in one way. Six months on trial is a nightmare for your life. But uh, I learned a lot, and uh, it was a great uh, first federal trial. And as uh, as a four-year lawyer then, about four years, you were uh, 
trying a six-month uh, labor racketeering case uh, in is that in the Eastern District of uh, New York? Right, all in all in the Eastern District. The, the main courthouse in the Eastern District is in downtown Brooklyn. So it's actually about six blocks from the state courthouse. So for many, many years, I, I lived in a very small space uh, between the state courthouse and the federal courthouse. Okay, jump a few years ahead then to when the uh, investigation started with Gavi and the others. Um, so why don't you talk a bit about the investigation and some of the interesting things that happened and how you worked with the FBI and any other um, law enforcement that was involved with that? Sure. Uh, this is an unusual kind of prosecution in the sense that um, most people get prosecuted for crimes in the United States. The sequence of events is uh, law enforcement arrests them for something. Uh, and brings them to court, and then law enforcement drops their file on the desk of an assistant U.S. attorney or an assistant state's attorney and says, I just arrested this guy, prosecute him. And then the prosecutor moves forward from there. Uh, our model with the strike force was very different. Our model with the strike force was that we built our cases first. No arrest until we felt we had built a very solid case. So what we did um, in the Gotti case is what we did in all of our cases, which is um, we would meet with law enforcement or law enforcement would come to us and they would say, there's this individual, uh, he's involved in organized crime, this is the evidence we have about him, this is what we're told about him, we think he's, he's up to no good or he's done something very bad, uh, would you be willing to open an investigation? And sometimes we wouldn't, sometimes we wouldn't. With Mr. Gotti, uh, clearly we had the green light to, to open an investigation. We sat down with the FBI's Gambino squad, uh, literally. We sat at a table, uh, and we just asked them, tell us what, you, what your information tells you this guy is up to. And for days and days, they, they shared all kinds of information with us about all the various kinds of activities Mr. Gotti and the Gambino family were involved in. And it was incredibly broad. Dozens of potential kinds of crimes, everything from murder to uh, pornography, which at the time uh, in many forms was illegal, uh, prostitution, um, but a lot of uh, labor racketeering, a lot of extortion, a lot of loan sharking, um, construction, uh, corruption, um, and then just all the violence that was used to carry forward and, and make all of those kind of criminal activities possible. So after a, a, a length of time of basically being educated about everything he was up to, we, we started the process of winnowing that very large list of potential charges or potential things to investigate uh, down to something more manageable. So we identified, um, I think, about 15 or 20 potential criminal activities or even in some cases specific criminal acts like a murder, the murder of uh, Paul Castellano, the former Gambino family boss, that sort of thing. So we identified the approximately 15 crimes that we wanted to start to really investigate and delve into and working with the FBI and what they had from their sources and, and 
what we had learned in other cases, we started to slowly come up with a strategy to build each of these cases. What kind of evidence would we need to prosecute the Castellano homicide? What kind of evidence would we need to prosecute the gambling case? What kind of evidence would we need for the conspiracy to murder, you know, Corky Vastola, et cetera? And once we came up with our strategy, uh, we began to just execute the strategy, which is to go and try and find the evidence. So we would, I working with the FBI, we'd identify potential witnesses, potential pieces of physical evidence. This was before emails, so our life was much simpler. Um, we, we had to find people or pieces of paper or maybe a tape. Uh, the single most important thing we did at that point was we began to realize that the best evidence would be the words of the defendants themselves, because the mafia, uh, even today, I imagine, uh, doesn't send a lot of emails. And back then, they didn't do a lot of memos. Um, they would give orders and conduct business verbally, talking with each other. And so we worked with the FBI very hard for a long time, trying to figure out where um, where could we get a, a, a search warrant or a wiretap um, or a bug in place to capture these guys uh, in the act? And it was at that time that we got extremely lucky. Um, and Mr. Gotti uh, had a couple what they called social clubs, which were basically just storefronts that the organized crime figures use as a place to meet. And he had one in lower Manhattan called the Ravenite. And he would go there regularly to meet with people because if you run a, a large scale multi-million dollar business with hundreds of members uh, and you don't do memos, you have to have a place where you can talk and get reports and give orders. Uh, so he used to go to the Ravenite several nights a week and hold court and meet with people. But it was very hard. People had gotten bugs in the Ravenite before, but it was almost impossible to hear anything. Things were mumbled. They always had the music playing very loud. There could be 40 guys in the room, and Mr. Gotti would be over in a corner whispering in somebody's ear. So those weren't very productive. But we got a break, and through an informant, we found out that Mr. Gotti had developed the habit of uh, taking an interior stairwell in this little building in lower Manhattan uh, and going up to an apartment two floors above the Ravenite, which was owned by a uh, nice little widow lady. Um, and he would go up and use her apartment to have private meetings, one-on-one -on -one or two-on-one -on -one with people. Um, it, had, it was a great idea because uh, the stairwell was interior in the building. It was not visible to people looking at the building from outside. He could access it through a side door in the Ravenite Club. And from the outside, it was impossible to know when he was up there. Um, but we did find out he was up there. Uh, and we ultimately got uh, a warrant to go in and place a listening device in the apartment. Actually, we placed two. And uh, they, the FBI burglars uh, broke in <laughs> some night, and uh, they placed the listening devices, one in the living room and one in the kitchen. And uh, sure enough, uh, for a period of about three months, uh, we got a number, 
probably almost a dozen different conversations where Mr. Gotti would go up there with one or two people, always with just one or two people, always his two top guys, Mr. Lacasio and Mr. Gravano, sometimes all three, sometimes just two, but always Gotti and somebody. And they would talk about the most significant issues going on in, in the Gambino family. And those tapes provided the bonanza because those tapes included Mr. Gotti saying uh, in so many words, um, I'm the boss of the family. There is a family. It's called the Gambino family. Um, he reminisced at times about the people he had killed. Uh, he, there are tapes where he says, when I killed DB, when I whacked Louis de Bono, uh, and he would talk about how they did it and why they did it. Um, and he would talk about a lot of things. Um, and the tapes were amazingly queer, amazingly queer. Uh, which is unusual in these kinds of situations because it's not sort of set up to be recorded, right? There's a listening device inside a lamp. Uh, but um, we were able to get some absolutely stunning uh, admissions by Mr. Gotti. While all that was going on, and we had to manage that because when you have a wire like that or a bug, I should say, um, you have to periodically, it's every 10 days approximately, go back to a judge and tell the judge what you've done, what you've heard, and ask for permission to keep going. And that's time-consuming both for the FBI monitoring it. For me, every morning I would come in in the morning while the bug was up and there'd be a stack of cassette tapes on my desk from the night before. Um, the mob never does anything during the day. <laughs> Everything <laughs> happens at night. Uh, they sleep very late and they, they stay up very late. Uh, so it would always be the night before, and I would sit there for hours uh, listening, trying to figure out what they were saying and what was significant. Um, so it was very time-consuming. But at the same time while we were doing that, we were issuing subpoenas for uh, records, bank records, other records. We were trying to interview witnesses. Uh, we were interviewing uh, people that we thought might have information about some of the activities we were looking into, including family members of people the mob had killed and people the mob was planning to kill and people that the mob was extorting and uh, that sort of thing. So we had dozens and dozens of witnesses before the grand jury. Over many months, we were monitoring the bug. Uh, we were adjusting our, our strategy as we went along. And uh, ultimately, after about a year, we felt we had gathered enough evidence that we were ready to move. Uh, we had what I, you know, jokingly refer to as uh, the beauty pageant, which was a two-day event at the office where um, each of us, there were three of us by this time on the trial team, each of us had a certain number of potential charges assigned to us, potential cases, and we took turns presenting the argument as to why our case should be one of the ones that makes it into the final indictment. And then when we were done, we voted. Everybody voted, the, the three lawyers and the people, the head of the FBI squad, and we voted on which, which charges were good enough to bring because we wanted to bring only the strongest charges. We wanted to bring charges that were, would be easy for the jury to understand, where the evidence was strong and clear, where there didn't appear to be any ambiguity or at least uh, a limited amount of ambiguity. And um, 
that's what we did. And out of that came the 13 charges that made it into the indictment that was filed. So um, explain a little bit how the grand jury works. When did that, when was that impaneled as part of the investigation, excuse me? Grand juries are the way that uh, felony charges are brought in our federal system. So a grand jury is a group of between 16 and 24 civilians who receive a notice in the mail to report for jury duty. And when they arrive at the federal building, uh, they're told, you folks go over there, you're going to be in a grand jury. And a grand jury's purpose is to evaluate evidence produced by the prosecution and make an initial determination whether there is probable cause to believe that there is evidence that a crime occurred and that the person or persons that the prosecutor is saying we want to charge with this crime uh, is responsible for it. It's meant, it's in the Constitution, it's meant as a check against unbridled prosecutorial uh, activity. It is an opportunity for civilians, just citizens, to come in and look at the government's evidence before they bring a charge because the grand jury is a recognition that simply having criminal charges brought against you is a monumental event in anybody's life and that there should be some there should be some precautions taken before that's done and that's what the grand jury is supposed to do so the way the grand jury works is that those 16 to 24 people um are told they're eventually picked and they're a judge addresses them and the judge says, all right, you're going to be on the grand jury. This is your job. You're going to listen to the evidence. And then ultimately the prosecutors, when they're done, will come to you and say, here are the charges we want to bring. Here's the people we want to bring them against. Here's the indictment. Here's literally what we want to file. Um, can we file this? Do we have your permission grand jury to file it? And then the grand jury votes. And if a majority of the grand jury votes, that you can go ahead and bring that charge against that person, then that charge goes forward. And if they vote you can't, then you can't. And that's that. Um, so the grand jury, though, differently from a regular jury, they sit in secret uh, and they're sworn to secrecy because you don't want them hearing bad things about Joe Smith and then going out and telling people because Joe Smith may never be charged with anything. And be very unfair for Joe Smith to have the whole world hear bad stuff about him. Um, he'd also never have a chance to defend himself. Uh, so they're sworn to secrecy. They don't meet every day. They meet as needed. So in other words, when there are prosecutors who have evidence that they want to present to the grand jury, uh, they're notified, please come in on Tuesday at nine o'clock. You'll be here until noon. And then they come in and uh, then they come back the next time that they're needed. So grand jurors sit anywhere. It varies from place to place and jury to jury, but they can sit anywhere from uh, three months to six months. And in special uh, circumstances, they can sit for up to 18 months. But again, they're not meeting every day or even every week. They come in as needed. So what we were doing is we were calling witnesses and, and presenting other evidence to the grand jury as we got it. And so it worked somewhat like a trial in the sense or a courtroom. They sit in sort of a pseudo courtroom. Um, there's a bench where the jury foreman sits. And if we called a witness, the witness would go in, the witness would be sworn in. 
And then I, as the prosecutor, would ask questions. And sometimes it was an FBI agent who was saying, well, we subpoenaed some records, and here are the records, and here's what we think they say. Other times it would just be people. Um, I know I, one of the witnesses I remember in the Gotti grand jury uh, was a guy that we found out about who uh, he was a hair stylist. And Mr. Gotti, amongst other things, um, claimed that his only income was $40,000 a year from a job being a zipper salesman in the fashion district. Um, and that's what he paid taxes on. And uh, we suspect that that wasn't true. Uh, so one of the charges we were investigating was tax evasion. So we were one way you do that is you prove that the guy claims he makes $40,000 a year, but he spends 100000 So obviously something's not right. He's lying on his tax returns. So we found out that Mr. Gotti had a habit of uh, uh, six days a week, he would have a hairstylist come to his home at around 1030 every morning and uh, do his hair before he went out into the world. Mr. Gotti was known as something of a fashion plate, and he was uh, he was very careful about his appearance. So he had this guy come to his house every day and in his bedroom fix his hair before he would go out. And so we found out the FBI just would watch, you know, they would watch Gotti's house and they'd see this guy going every day and they tried to figure out who he was and they followed him and they figured out he's a hairstylist. So we brought him in. We tried to talk to him on the street. He refused. So we gave him a grand jury subpoena. We brought him in and I said, uh, do you go to Mr. Gotti's house every day and cut his hair? And the gentleman was a very nice man uh, in some ways. And uh, he had a very, beautiful accent. And he said, no, I do not cut his hair. I said, would you go to his house every morning? He said, yes. I said, well, what do you do? He said, I quaff. (laughs) (laughs) And I said, what? And he said, I quaff his hair. I don't cut it. I said, okay. All right. I get it. That's a distinction. Um, And I said, and, and how long does it take you? He said, "Uh, 45 minutes, an hour. I said, and, um, what do you get paid for that? And he says, I don't get paid anything. I said, let me get this straight. <laughs> Six days a week, month after month, year after year, you go to Mr. Gotti's house and you quaff his hair. Uh, but you don't get anything for that. No. I said, well, why do you quaff his hair every day? Why do you take an hour or more of your day every day of the week and quaff his hair if you're not getting paid? And he said, Mr. Gotti is such a nice man. And I was a little frustrated. And I said, well, I'm a nice man. Will you come quaff my hair tomorrow? And the jury laughed, you know, and and, uh, the guy looked at me and he took a moment and he said, I do not think you are a nice man. (laughs) (laughs) And, And so he did not come and quaff my hair. But uh, it was it was it was one of the lighter moments. But it was it, it just in in the mob world, it's very important. The mobsters are not stupid people. They're often they're very clever, and they understand how the tax law works. And so they pay for everything, or they have everything paid for in cash. But they make it very clear to whoever they pay that you can never tell anybody I paid you, because you'll get me in trouble. So this guy clearly was being paid, uh, and probably a lot. But he would 
he would have rather gone to prison than admit to me that he had been paid for all those visits. So, but that was, you know, we, we had people all the time in the grand jury, uh, presenting evidence. And after almost a year and a half, a little less than a year and a half, we went to them with a draft indictment and we sort of summarized all the evidence they had already heard. And we tried to explain how we felt each piece of evidence supported one of the charges in our indictment. And then we asked them to vote uh, that the indictment could go forward. And then we leave the room and then they vote and then they come and they tell us what they voted. And that's what happened in this case. And this is after you, uh, your team had voted on what to present um, to, yeah. the, to the grand jury. Exactly. Our vote was just a vote as to what to leave in and what to leave out and, and you know, how to put our best foot forward, not, not sort of just give them everything we had learned. Because, frankly, some of the, you know, it, it's the nature of life that not every allegation, not the evidence supporting each allegation, they were not all equal. We did not have Mr. Gotti on tape admitting to every single thing we had investigated him on. We had him admitting to several, which was wonderful, uh, but he didn't, he just didn't mention several others. So some of the charges and the evidence supporting them were stronger than others. So one consideration is you don't want to, at trial, present the jury with several very strongly supported counts, and then there's three or four that are good counts, well-supported, but simply they're so much weaker than the other counts that you don't want the jury to conclude, well, I'm going to acquit him on those others because, you know, they, they don't have overwhelming evidence on those. Uh, so it was that kind of a judgment. So we make that determination. We finish our investigation. We write it up in a very formal document called an indictment. We present it to the grand jury. The grand jury votes. And if they say true bill, which is the term of art for yes, you can prosecute, uh, we then file it in court and go out and arrest the people named in the indictment, in this case, Mr. Gotti, Gravano, and Locasio. I'd like to take a short break to remind you that I'm speaking with attorney Patrick Cowder about his experience in prosecuting John Gotti, the Teflon Don. My name is Rick Bailey. I'm a trial lawyer and mediator focusing on business disputes, and you can learn more about me at rickbaileylaw.com or on LinkedIn. From the time the uh, indictment was, um, is it is it called re- um, returned or approved? How how do you term that? Returned. 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 From, from the time the indictment was returned, how long was it until you went to trial? Uh, it was a, actually an unusually long time. Um, it was probably I'm trying to think now. Oh boy, I think it we returned it in 1990. And he, and it was, it was the winter, I believe. So it was the end of 1990 and he was not tried until, as I say, 92. And there were a number of reasons for that. Uh, that's an unusually long period of time, though in the federal court, a year from indictment to trial is very common. Two years was a lot. Um, what happened is, uh, two, two major things, um, we were originally set to go to trial in the uh, fall of 91 and right after Labor Day. But um, so that was the original date. But 
fall of 91, we were supposed to go to trial. We had made a motion six months earlier to disqualify several of Mr. Gotti's defense attorneys uh, because they were, in fact, on our tapes uh, meeting with Mr. Gotti uh, and indeed committing crimes, obstructing justice and doing other things. And the federal law is very clear. Uh, the government's evidence cannot impugn the integrity or attack the honesty of the defense attorneys, because if you do that, you're undermining the defendant's Sixth Amendment right to uh, an adequate defense. So we were left in the position of either we have to have different attorneys or we can't use this evidence. So we made a motion to disqualify uh, a few of the attorneys. He had, I don't know, he had eight or nine attorneys on his case. Um, and we did not think we would win. Uh, it's a very unusual motion. It hardly ever comes up. Uh, we frankly thought that we'd have to go to trial with either the judge ruling some of our tapes not admissible or having us cut them up in such a way that you couldn't figure out who the person was they were talking with. Um, but we were sort of resigned to that. But we had to make the motion, so we made the motion. Uh, stunningly, uh, in August of that year, the judge surprised everybody out of the blue uh, and issued an order granting our motion and disqualifying several of the attorneys. And we were supposed to go to trial in just a few weeks. And suddenly Mr. Gotti and Mr. Lacasio um, had fewer attorneys. Uh, so immediately, of course, the judge recognized that. And the judge said, well, I'm going to grant an extension of time to bring in additional new attorneys. So uh, the judge put the case over to the beginning of 92. And uh, so that added, you know, quite a number of months. The other big thing that slowed the case down is that um, after about 10 months um, in custody, because the defendants were detained in custody because of uh, not just the multiple murders, but they were charged with several counts of obstructing justice, including fixing jurors, uh, bribing law enforcement officials to get grand jury information, that sort of thing. And they were, there was a constant effort on their part. And one of their specialties was fixing juries and obstructing justice, finding witnesses, that sort of thing. So uh, we had made a motion when they were arrested to deny them bond because we made the argument that if they're out on bond, they're going to do this. They're going to fix the case. They're going to intimidate the witnesses. They're going to kill the witnesses. They're going to do all these things because as once they're indicted, they're going to learn who the witnesses are. They're going to learn what the case is about, and these guys will kill them. Um, so the judge granted our motion after lengthy hearings, and so they were incarcerated. And uh, after several months of that, uh, Sammy Gravano, who was the number two man in the organization, uh, he reached out to the government and said that um, based on some of the evidence he was hearing, including the tapes that we had, uh, where Mr. Gotti had a habit of talking behind Mr. Gravano's back a lot, uh, and at one point sort of musing about the possibility of killing Sammy, um, Sammy had decided that he didn't want to go to trial with these guys anymore and he wanted to cut a deal. So he did. And uh, we ultimately, he became, he pled guilty and he ultimately became a witness at trial. So that slowed the case down because once that came out, the defense said, well, we need additional time now to prepare because we didn't, 
you know, obviously we didn't know he was going to do that and, and we need more time. And so the court said, sure, yeah, more time. So it was an unusually long period of time before the case went to trial. So did Gravano and uh, perhaps other witnesses go into witness protection during that period? Um, I think in that case, Gravano was the only one who went into witness protection program ultimately, but he had to go to prison first. So it was not he was held in protective custody the whole time. He was never allowed to go free while he was a witness. He was, he was essentially in jail. He wasn't in the same jail with Gotti, but he was in a, he was locked up. Um, and then after the trial, he testified in, he helped us convict some, somewhere in the vicinity of 40, four zero other mobsters. Um, and that took another year or so. Um, but after that, he had to go to prison. And then he, when he finished his sentence, um, he was let out. And at first, at that point, I had actually left the government at that point. But it was my understanding that uh, at that point, he initially went into the witness protection program. But uh, within a year or two, he voluntarily left it. And uh, he, which they're allowed to do when you're when you've done your time, witness protection is really for your benefit. It's not a sentence. And he decided to take his chances on his own. He wanted to write a book. Uh, he was very cocky. Um, the the good news, the happy news, is that Mr. Gravano moved out, I think it was to Arizona, with his family. And he and his son very quickly started um, trying to sell drugs. Uh, and they got caught right away. And Mr. Gravano then proceeded to do, I believe, another 15 or 20 years in prison. So um, in, in my view, that's a very happy ending because uh, Mr. Gravano was a very bad guy and uh, it was not pleasant to have to cut a deal with him, but it was important. It was, I, I think, the right decision. It, it helped ensure our victory in this case and get Mr. Gotti and Lacasio off the street. But more importantly, and the reason we really did it, we knew he could give us a lot of other people who, frankly, at that point, we didn't have the evidence on, but he did because he knew everything. He was their boss. And he literally helped us to destroy that family, just destroy it. So it was the right thing to do, but it hurt that we had to cut a deal with this guy because he should have been in jail till he died as well. Uh, and luckily, he, he did not take advantage of his second chance, and he managed to put himself back in prison. I spent hundreds of hours sitting in a cell with Mr. Gravano getting ready for trial. And it was not a pleasant part of my life. But, uh, yeah, he and I sat on, we shared his cot and prepped for trial. Uh, yeah, interesting guy. Did you put him on as a witness at trial then? I ended up not putting him on. Uh, my partner, John Gleason, did. Um, I prepped him um, because I was in charge of prosecuting the murders in the case. And Gravano was a very important witness in those cases, in particularly the Castellano and Bellotti homicides, because he had been present. And the Castellano and Bellotti homicides were the only two murders we prosecuted that Gotti hadn't uh, said on tape that he did. He didn't say he didn't do it. He just didn't say he did it. Um, so we really needed him for that. That was important. So I prepped him for that. But in the end, the decision was made to have John uh, present him as a witness, and I, I think that was absolutely the right decision because John is a fantastic lawyer, and uh, I think the jury perceived John as the leader of the prosecution team, and rightly so. 
And I think that it was important to have the most important single witness in the trial presented by the leader of the prosecution team. So, and John did a magnificent job, just a magnificent job. And, and as much as I have maybe said some things uh, that indicate I may not like Mr. Gravano very much, <clears throat> I will say um, he was a hell of a witness. <laughs> he turned out to be a really good witness. He's very articulate, very intelligent, didn't get flustered, didn't get, let himself get rattled on cross-examination. He did a great job. How did you organize the trial team then? Uh, we had, um, there were essentially three key members to the trial team, John, myself, and Laura Ward, another attorney in our office. Laura took the lead in organizing all of the evidence, the, the, the hundreds, if not thousands of pieces of paper and tapes and, and all of that. And this is all pretty much pre-computer, okay? We weren't using computers at all. Uh, so it was, it was intensive. It was a full-time important job and she had to really understand the case at least as well as the rest of us, if not better. And she did. And so Laura was in charge of organizing everything and making sure everything was where we needed it when we needed it. Um, John Gleason, as I say, he was the leader. He was the head of the strike force at the time. He was, uh, leader. Um, and so what we did and then I, and then there was me. So John and I presented most of the witnesses. What we what we did is we divided up the witnesses uh, between us. Um, for the most part, I presented witnesses who were involved in the homicides and the tax count and the gambling. And John presented witnesses who were on the on the, um, some of the bigger, broader issues like the Racketeering Act, the RICO Act the obstructions of justice, uh, which John was very familiar with. Um, and, uh, you know, John put on most of the uh, FBI agents who would come on to essentially introduce the tapes, and then we would play the tapes. The, the reality is we didn't present that many witnesses. Um, we had a, a bunch, but uh, our best evidence uh, were the tapes. So we used to, you know, there would be times where John or I would just be standing at a podium uh, playing tapes for the jury. Um, and it's a great witness as a tape because you can't cross-examine it. Uh, it just says what it says. So the uh, FBI agents would authenticate yeah. the tapes and identify who's speaking and right. that sort of thing? Right. Yeah. What is this? That's a tape. What's it a tape of? It's a tape we made on December 12, 1988 or whatever it was, uh, what was what was the source? The source was a microphone we had placed in the apartment two floors up at the Ravenite Social Club. Uh, okay, this is being offered in evidence, Your Honor, admitted. May I play the tape? Yes, I may. And periodically I would stop the tape if there was a reference, a name or, or something, and, or if they would say, you know, underboss or consigliere, I'd stop the tape and I'd say, Mr. FBI agent, uh, you've been qualified here as an expert on organized crime uh, slang and vernacular. Yes, I have. Uh, what is the consigliere? Would you tell the jury? And he would explain the consigliere is essentially the number three man in the family, uh, and they form the triumvirate. He, the underboss, and the boss are the three guys who make all the decisions. Um, and then we'd go on. 
And if they said, when I killed DB, which was a quote, uh, I'd stop it and I'd say, now, Mr. FBI agent, do you, do you have you done independent research? Do you have an do you have a belief as to who Mr. DB is? Yes, that's Robert D. Bernardo. Okay, and uh, do you know what where Mr. D. Bernardo is today? Yes, Mr. D. Bernardo was buried. You know, three years ago he was found shot. You know, the bullet in his head on such and such a day. So we were essentially there were long periods of time during the trial where we were essentially I used to joke I said we're like DJs. You know, we, we're, we're, we're sort of playing the greatest hits here. And, uh, you know, we're sort of explaining to the audience uh, what they're hearing on the tape. So uh, that's sort of how we did it. We divided it up. Uh, John and I did most of the witnesses, and Laura was the general in charge of all the support, uh, all, the, all the evidence. And we had a lot of support from other lawyers, too. We had a guy, Jamie, uh, who was a terrific lawyer. Um, he didn't sit at a table, but he did all the legal research. And every day the defense attorneys would file, because they had a whole staff of lawyers, they would file five or six motions to try and disrupt the case. And we never had to worry about it because we would just hand them to Jamie. And Jamie would, would overnight produce brilliant responses. And so it kept, kept us uh, able to do our jobs. Uh, so, yeah, that's kind of how. And then we had the FBI agents there to help us you know, just carrying stuff and getting us lunch, uh, keeping us from getting killed, you know, little things like that. How, how did, um, well, I mean, that raises a, an interesting question. Uh, does the mafia target prosecutors and, and FBI agents? Uh, not as a rule, not as a rule, because um, they recognize two things, at least, that one we're fairly fungible. Uh, if I used to joke, because uh, people would always say, "Well, aren't you afraid that they'll try to kill you?" And I said, "No. If if anything happens to me, if I die in any unusual way, I want you guys to investigate the other lawyers in the strike force, because there's not one of them that wouldn't kill to have my spot <laughs> on this case." Um, and and the reality, the, the the truth behind that lame joke is that if if I had, you know gotten hit by a bus, the next day one of my compatriots would have been in the courtroom. Uh, so we're fungible. So there's not a lot to be gained by, by hurting us. Um, the other reason they don't, of course, is that they understand that if they did that, the law enforcement world would not rest until they got the guys involved. So it's, it's, they would pay a very high price for doing it. Um, that being said, I will say this was, and I was a prosecutor in a lot of organized crime cases, but this is the one case where there actually was a credible threat. Uh, and it was very funny how it came about. Um, it's a long story, which I'll spare you, but essentially what happened is about two weeks before the verdict, uh, the case was winding down. Everybody knew it. Um, we were working in our offices one night around nine or 10, and we get a call to come over to the judge's chambers immediately. So, Laura and John and I, we all tromp over to the judge's chambers. And there's these two guys there who I've never seen before in suits. Just because of the suit, I knew they were FBI agents. Uh, and the judge announces that he's just been informed by the FBI that there's a credible threat. There's actually a contract out to uh, whack uh, either John Gleason or myself. Um, and 
we were all kind of stunned and Laura was disappointed. Uh, she felt insulted and I don't blame her. Uh, but the, it was explained to us that the, the thinking was that the case was not going well. They had not been able to fix the jury, which was their major strategy on how to beat these cases. They hadn't been able to do it because we took extraordinary steps to protect the jury. And um, the thought, I guess, was that if John or I, since we were the two guys who were talking most in court, if one of us uh, suddenly disappeared, the government would have to ask for a continuance. And if there was a continuance, the thinking on the mob part was that that'll give them a chance to get at the jurors and try and turn one of them. So that was interesting. And so we said, well, what do we do about it? And they said, well, we don't, you know, we, we don't know. It's just a contract. Anybody could pick it up. We don't know. Um, so they, they put us under guard and they, they, I didn't have a family at the time. John did. He had a wife and child. And so his family was moved to a safe location and, and, uh, I didn't need to be moved. Um, I, I lived actually two blocks from the courthouse. So I just continued to live at home, but apparently there were people outside my building for a couple of weeks, uh, protecting me. Um, but the thing we did to really protect ourselves was uh, we came up with this strategy that the next day uh, in the morning, I didn't go to court. John and Laura went and John did everything and Laura helped and did her usual great job. And then in the afternoon after lunch, I went to court and John stayed in the office and I did everything. And the, the, the point was to say to the mob, it won't work. If you whack John, Pat will do it. And if you whack Pat, John will do it. And so there's absolutely nothing to be gained. You're not going to get your continuance. If you do whack one of us, we're, we're, we're not going to ask for continuance. We're just going to finish the trial. And we did that for about a week. And then we decided the point had been made and we just went back to doing stuff normally. But, um, in the event, nothing ever happened. Uh, there were no attempts that I'm aware of. Apparently, they also <laughs> – I left out they, – they apparently also had a contract on the judge because they thought, well, if the judge gets whacked, then they're definitely going to need a new trial. Um, so he was under uh, – he and his family were under guard. But um, nothing ever came of it, and uh, you know, for all I know, maybe it was wrong. Maybe it was just a rumor, but – that was the only time in all the years I did it where I actually thought, well, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe somebody's going to do something, but they didn't. How long uh, did the jury deliberate? Uh, oh my God. Almost no time at all. It was crazy. Uh, the jury was charged and began deliberation on April fool's day. Um, and I, it was it was the first full day. They were it was, they they deliberated for the rest of that day. So they went out around eleven in the morning or something, and they didn't have a verdict. And we didn't expect they would. The next day dawns. The morning goes by. They didn't do anything. They didn't say anything. They didn't do anything. And I decide for the first time in three months I'm going to go out to lunch. So I get a couple of the guys and uh, we go to a little diner about three blocks from the courthouse. And I'm ordering my first cheeseburger in three months. And uh, there were no cell phones at the time. But luckily, one of the guys I was sitting with had a beeper, if you remember that. 
and he gets a he gets a, a page and it just says 911 and it keeps flashing 911 911 and we're sitting there trying to figure it out and all of a sudden some somebody says oh my god maybe there's a verdict and they're trying to reach us so um we get to a payphone. We call, and sure as hell, the jury has announced they have a verdict, and the judge is going to take it, and he's announced he's going to take it in about 20 minutes. So <laughs> um, I ran. I didn't pay my check. Uh, I, I still owe one of the guys I left there for that lunch. I ran the three blocks back to the courthouse. I ran right up to the courtroom. Everybody was already in the courtroom. I whipped my coat off and threw it somebody I knew and sat down and 10 seconds later, the judge came out and, uh, they brought in their verdict and, uh, they convicted everybody. Uh, they convicted Gotti of everything. They convicted Lucasio of all but one count involving some gambling. And it was, um, absolutely stunning because until the verdict came in, we were not at all certain we would get a guilty verdict because there was this long history with Gotti and the Gambinos that they always seemed to fix the jury. And indeed, one of the counts in our indictment was about them fixing an earlier jury. And we were very nervous that they would have gotten to our jury. But this jury was not gotten to, and they were very... I was stunned at how quick they were, and I was stunned at how seemingly comfortable they were. There was a, the, the foreman of the jury was this... Uh, rather uh, petite uh, young woman, and golly gee, she 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 didn't yell out the verdicts, but she made clear everybody in the courtroom heard her. She was not shy about it. So uh, it was it was uh, it was quick. It was a very quick verdict. And he, I think, at the beginning, he said that he was uh, sentenced to life in prison, and uh, and then yes. he uh, died in prison, if I recall correctly. Yeah, he did. He he died of throat cancer eleven years later, and Mr. Lacasio is still in prison. So he's he's actually rather elderly now. So Pat, I I, I want to um, um, you're a, a white collar criminal defense lawyer now, and uh, am I am I right about that? Yes, and uh, you've been a law professor and done a number of things since then, but. Um, your main uh, uh, gig now is white collar criminal defense, and so I'd like to ask you just to, and and you're also a, appear frequently on, uh, in the media, uh, newspapers, magazines, um, the um, um, media over the air um, about things that are going on in society now, and so what I'd like to ask you is, um, what this experience um, as a prosecutor in the Gotti case how that informs your view of the world now. Um, obviously, FBI agents are under attack. There's lots of questions about the Justice Department. Um, what do you bring forward from that in really incredible experience to your, your work today and to your view of the world today? Well, that's, a, that's an amazing question. Um, I, I will try to, to, to share some of my thoughts, I guess. I... I will tell you one of the, the main things I took away from my experience as a federal prosecutor is the amazing uh, and in some senses frightening amount of power that our system gives to federal prosecutors. It, it, is, a, it is a 
awesome and fearsome thing to be able to charge somebody with a crime. And it is a tremendous responsibility. And with any awesome power, of course, there has to be uh, an equal amount of responsibility. And when there isn't, terrible things can happen. Um, it was my experience that m the overwhelming majority of the prosecutors and the federal agents, both from the IRS and the FBI and all the other agencies I dealt with, um, they wanted to do the right thing. They tried to do the right thing. And overwhelmingly, they did the right thing. That said, uh, they're all human beings. And like me, uh, they made mistakes. I'm sure I made mistakes. I'm positive I made mistakes as a prosecutor in almost 10 years. Um, it's very easy when you have that much power to forget um, the impact it's having on not just the people you target, but their families, their friends. Uh, it, it, is, it is, as I say, a, an awesome power we give to our law enforcement people. And I think that the best of them would readily admit the same. And I think that they would readily admit that they need to be checked. There needs to be a very vigorous, strong check on them. And the best check, of course, is the courts. But even the courts at times, uh, to be frank, uh, sort of err on the side of the government. Um, as a sideline, I'll just say I'm sometimes asked w which I enjoyed more, being a defense attorney or a federal prosecutor. And I said, I love I love them both for different reasons. But the thing I miss most about being a federal prosecutor is when I walked into a courtroom as a federal prosecutor, I knew that everybody on the jury and every judge was ready to be on my side. They were ready to believe me. They wanted to believe me. They wanted to believe that I was coming in and telling them the truth. And that was a great advantage because as a defense attorney, when I walk into a courtroom, the one thing I know is that the jury and usually the judge is very skeptical of everything I say. Everything after my name, they doubt because I'm a defense attorney, right? Um, and that's just an example of the kind of power that law enforcement wields. And so I think that they would recognize, and I think it's a fact, that they need to be checked, they need to be challenged, they need to be looked at skeptically. Um, and if they've done their job right, it'll be fine. You know, the truth will out. They'll, if they're supposed to win because they've got the evidence, they'll win. But you've got to check them because they do make mistakes and they do get carried away and they do develop tunnel vision and sometimes they forget that uh, not everybody who's a bad guy is guilty of whatever you think he's guilty of. Sometimes he can be a bad guy and be innocent. Uh, so um, that's, I guess, maybe the big, big lesson I took away from it is, is how important it is what defense attorneys do. I always knew what we did was important, but having been on that side and seeing the power, uh, it makes you all the more aware of how important it is to to really do it right to be a good defense attorney to really challenge well that's a really great answer um is there anything you'd like to add 
only that uh, you know the 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 Gotti case was this amazing um, opportunity that just fell in my lap. I didn't earn it. I, I wasn't the best lawyer in the office. Uh, I just I was just at the right place at the right time, and I got picked for it. And it was the single most uh, intense professional experience of my life. And um, I can't help but sometimes wonder how my life would have been different if I hadn't gotten on that case or if, uh, God forbid, we had lost. Uh, you know, somebody once asked me, they said, oh, how has it changed your life? I said, well, you, first of all, you're a reporter and you're asking me that. And let me ask you, when was the last time somebody interviewed the prosecutors who lost the first three Gotti trials? Uh, so my life is definitely different because of the Gotti case, mostly in very good ways. Uh, so I'm very grateful for it, but I, I don't kid myself that I earned it. I was just very lucky. Well, I think uh, I can speak for everyone and, and thank you for your public service and dedication and doing that prosecution and all the others you did. Uh, and, uh, thank you also for your, uh, uh defense work, um, uh, extremely important and uh, um, keep up the good work <laughs> I'll try I'll try and thank you very much thank you Patrick Cotter for this timely and informative discussion of the prosecution and conviction of the Teflon Don Law and the Body Politic is produced by me Rick Bailey with editing sound design and graphic design by Veronica Strait Lingo you can learn more about me at rickbaileylaw.com or on LinkedIn. Many thanks for listening. <laughs>